Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. It takes a pandemic. Okay, you fill in the rest. For instance, it takes a pandemic for me to finally clean out my desk. It takes a pandemic to start reading that pile of New Yorkers. Uh, It takes a pandemic for me to finally learn to bake. Well, for audiences of live performance, it takes a pandemic to cherish our actors and musicians. With our great jazz venues and theaters closed, live performance has stopped. But actors and musicians continue to create. They have to. It's who they are. For this Hunker Down podcast, I talk with these artists who perform for a living about how social distancing is affecting their work now and when this is all over. About their dedication to the art of live performance. That opening was Beethoven's sonatas, performed by Ralph Schulte on the violin and accompanied by Judith Olson, and we'll hear more of that performance at the end of this program. Judith Olson studied violin and piano at the Juilliard School and now teaches and performs at the Bloomingdale School of Music. She is both a collaborative and solo performer and has toured throughout North, Central, and South America, Europe, the Middle East, and Korea. And she enjoys working with music composers on their pieces. Born in Germany, Ralph Schulte started playing the violin at five under the tutelage of his father. At 14, Schulte made his orchestral debut with the Philharmonic Hungarica in Cologne, playing Mendelssohn's Concerto. He has performed with orchestras throughout Europe and premiered many new works. His many recordings include Schoenberg's Violin Concerto. Rolf Schulte's experience and contributions to the contemporary music world is extensive and cannot be represented in such a brief introduction. Sounds uh, very familiar. Um, I remember being in Woodstock and Carla Blay asked us all, what did you have for breakfast? Is that a standard journalistic question? Or? <laughs> no, no. It's just I mean, so where, I can... Where does it come from? That, that's what I wonder. It's when I first learned how to do uh, uh, podcasting, the engineer that I worked with would ask everyone sitting around the table, what did you have for breakfast or lunch? And then you set levels. Uh-huh. Right. I mean, it was funny. Frederick Zevsky was there and everybody was asked, you know, and somebody named List, a trombone player from Juliet, maybe Judith remembers him. Garrett List. Yeah, I knew him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I forget, Ursula was there. You know, everybody was asked what you have for breakfast. <laughs> yeah, wow. and, and what you'll see the engineer doing is, is setting levels while you're, while you're doing that. Right, right, right I got it. Uh, it. It makes it difficult when, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll ask someone, what did you have for breakfast? And they'll say, Nothing. So, okay, what'd you have for lunch? I didn't have lunch. Nothing. Well, what are you going to have for dinner? I don't know. As I continue, you need so, so, okay, just say A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and 
right. you know, count one, two, three. But it's always better to set levels when uh, people are talking naturally right. rather than counting off numbers or stuff, which is not kind of the, the natural voice. So I just want to say thank you, Judith Olson and uh, Ralph Schulte, for joining us on Hunkered Down during this uh, COVID-19 pandemic that we're going through. This will go down, I guess, historically. People look back on these podcasts and say, what were they doing during that pandemic of 2020? Well, one of the things we're doing, we were podcasting. So let me start off by asking, how are you two doing? Or how, how is being hunkered down uh, affecting you? Well, I have a very large class of students at the music school where I teach, Bloomingdale School of Music. And, you know, they've already paid for the semester, which goes to late June. There was a point where even before they closed the school, I had decided I wasn't going there anymore because I heard that the little kids are the carriers. I put together, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty old. I'm not going to give you my age on the air, but I'm pretty old. And I you look, you teach, look good. A little, teach a lot of little kids. And I thought, this is not good. So I, I, I switched over to uh, teaching on Skype. I've been giving something like 25 lessons per week on Skype. And it's, been really, really difficult to schedule because even though everybody's home, that makes it difficult because like two parents and two kids typically are all doing their homework or their regular work online. And every time I need to give a piano lesson, somebody's father needs to use that room for his law office. A lot of the parents are healthcare workers. They're, they're afraid to get near their kids when they get home. They have to come home and download all their schoolwork from third grade, help them with their schoolwork, then piano. So I'm teaching seven days a week instead of four, and wow. I'm hating it. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. Are, are you hating it because you're busy? Because you'd have to teach these lessons anyway. Or is it because this it's this format? I, I'm hating it because <clears throat> I because it takes more time than usual. Yeah. And, um, and also... The instruments, I found out how bad their instruments are at home. At Bloomingdale. Um, the, no, I, I mean, at Bloomingdale, they're, I know what, at Bloomingdale, they're okay, but I'm going into their homes now, and right. I'm finding out that they're playing on key, keyboards that don't make dynamics and that, that don't have pedals, and some of their pianos are half a tone flat. So Over this... Skype, the piano sounds like a cement mixer. Sometimes I really can't tell what they're playing. The connection plays tricks on me. I hear octave displacements and and harmonics. It sounds like they're going up when they're going down. There's a delay. Their wrists go up when they're supposed to go down. It, it's pretty hard. <laughs> wow, wow. In, in a way, you kind of understand their environment more now than you did before. And maybe when you get back, you can say, well, you know, you know, I would imagine practicing on good equipment is going to be more fun or valuable than on bad equipment. So, Absolutely. So maybe you're learning something in, in, in this process. I mean, I, I've, I, it occurs to me that after we go through this, it might be um, a good idea for some electronic engineer to work out how to do this so it doesn't sound like this with all the you know, octave changes and electronic buzzes. Yeah, I, and I know that I know that there is good equipment in existence. I could get better microphones. I, I could, I'm just hoping that this won't go on so long. I'm just hoping it'll end and I'll go back to normal. But if it's going to go on for months at a time, I'll have to, to invest in some better equipment. 
Yeah, well, I'm I'm using some nice equipment here. I mean, you can see I've got the mic and and all, but it doesn't improve the fact that it's going through the internet, right? I mean, it doesn't change that. It's still going to be it doesn't change that electronic sounding. And and Rolf, you uh, also uh, teach as uh, one of the things that you do to make a living at the graduate center. But you wrote me that at this point you're getting your salary, but you're not teaching, and that you'd rather be teaching. Have, Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Have, have you ever? So my life hasn't really changed at all in many ways. Right. Um, not yet, anyway. Uh, so but you, this thing is going to go on for a long time. We better prepare ourselves for that. Yeah, I was just thinking about that. We're about three weeks in now, and mm -hmm. um, I'm spending many days, I'm sure all of us, just at home. I don't go out the whole day. Judith is staying busy. I'm staying busy. Rebecca, my wife, she's staying busy because she's teaching elementary school students. Just generally, are you going out? Are you, are you getting sick of being home? I mean, I know I am. I go out at least once a day. I'm being careful. I wear gloves, so whatever I touch, I don't have to fear. Right. Um, and when I go into a store, when I'm close to people, I put a face mask on. Uh, and Judith, do you go out? I go out. I live on Riverside Drive, and I live in a place where the drive kind of separates. We have our own little sliver of park. So I go out there and run around a little bit. Um, even the even the dog walkers are making really, really short trips now. They're yeah. not spending much time out there. So pretty much I'm by myself. I run around a few times, come home. I have two flights of stairs in my apartment. Uh, I run up and down the stairs a few times. I walk around. I walk from one end of the apartment to the other six times. I walk through the basement. I venture to the grocery store every few days with gloves and mask. And I try to go at some weird hour where there's almost nobody there. We live, uh, we're, we're all living on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And I went out bike riding yesterday and I found that Riverside Park was chock full of people. It was a beautiful really? day yesterday, chock full of people. And I, I was, uh, I had to find places not to be away from people. And in fact, in one part, there was uh, a man on a bike who was like speeding around and I was trying to get around somebody and not give them a lot of room. And he almost ran into me. It's still, to me, kind of crowded in our parks, um, which I don't find very comforting. So fi finding a... It wasn't even a Sunday. Yeah, I mean... We do you... were on Sunday and, yeah. So, Ralph, you find that it's still kind of crowded? Well, on a Sunday, I was surprised to find that out. On other days, it's pretty deserted in my neighborhood. Right, right. And, and you live on West 72nd. Um, still, it's a... It's a bustling neighborhood. So let's talk about your craft. You are um, still working um, on your craft? Are you still, I mean, Rolf, your, your violin is not with you. Your buddy is not, is not with you. Oh, I've got a replacement. <laughs> so I, mean, I, I, assumed, I assume you did. Uh, where, where is your main violin, the one that you usually It's in play Jackson with? Heights yep. with my regular luthier, um, Ivan Simonovic, who is the best. Uh, in the field, and not now that he knows that we're in this dilemma, he's not speeding up the, the if putting on the finishing touches. Right. He might not even want to see me, you know, want to come in close contact with me. 
But speaking of what you just mentioned the other day, on Sunday we took a walk and I dropped my second violin. And sure enough, when I opened the case, oh. the bridge split in half. So <gasps> oh, luckily, I, I was devastated, of course. Um, the injury is small. It'll cost me $100, $150 to put a new bridge on it. But uh, I didn't have anything to play on Sunday night. So luckily... Uh, a good old friend, Carol Zeven, uh, let me have her second or third fiddle. So that's what I'm playing on right now. Wow. So let let, let me ask you, Ralph. I mean, what, what this, we're in this moment now where you can't get a violin fixed right away, and your life is your violin. Uh, you must. You practice many, many hours a day. You play. What would it be like to not have your uh, any violin with you? Well, I'd prefer my Storioni, yes, of course. Yeah, but, but, but you can't what, always get what you want. Yeah, but what if you didn't have a violin at all? How would, would that that would change your life, wouldn't it? If I didn't have it, period, ever yeah. again. Yeah, or, or yeah. just for now, for a day or two. Well, I make do. I mean, the setup is totally different. Uh, it's very light. Uh, I'm used to playing pretty hard, and you know, there's very little resistance on the strings. But right. you know, you make. You make do. Yeah, and I wanted to talk a little bit about how you play hard on the violin because I've I've experienced that as an as an audience member. Judith, what are you what are you doing to continue to hone your craft? I continue to practice, of course. Rolf and I were supposed to be playing a concert uh, on the twenty fourth of this month. That's obviously not going to happen. Um, <laughs> I don't. And that was that was going to be at Bloomingdale uh, School of Music. Yeah, right. at Bloomingdale. The school, um, the latest version of events I've heard is that the school is going to be closed until the thirtieth. I don't believe it will open on the thirtieth. I believe it'll be closed for the rest of the semester. I was practicing for that until about a a week ago, and then I realized it's a lost cause. We wouldn't be able to rehearse. We'd have to stand six feet apart and wear masks. The other dilemma in terms of school is I have a huge event scheduled on June 7th with my students. Really big project. We're doing music from Hungary. And I'm planning it, even though I know it may be canceled, I'm putting a lot of work into planning it to give my students something to, to work for. Because some of the little ones don't really understand what's going on. I want to give them something specific to work for. We're hearing a lot of bar talk in, in Kodai and Daknanye and other other Hungarians at, at the moment. In terms of other things, I had a solo CD that, that was released just about the exact time that the virus became a huge problem. So I had a lot of things canceled in connection with that. I was supposed to do interviews and I was supposed to go travel and talk about it. And um, that's kind of derailed the publicity for my uh, CD. Well, why don't we do a little publicity now? What is the CD? It's called um, Urban Counterpoint, Piano Music of Ed Bland, B-L-A-N-D. Ed Bland is a very fascinating musician. He's not living anymore. He became very famous for producing a film called The Cry of Jazz. When he died, the New York Times gave him a huge obituary Heading was filmmaker, cry of jazz. He was one of the first uh, black people to make a film 
that expressed the ideas of the blacks challenging the whites. This was in the 1950s. Consequently, he, he had no idea at the time. He thought he was just making a home movie with his buddies in a club. But it became very important historically. And it was one of the things that started the civil rights movement. Now, that said, he spent most of his life as a musician, as an arranger, composed pop songs. He, he wrote Greasy Greens and Toe Jam and, <laughs> you know, things that I don't normally play, Skunk Juice. But he's done some serious music. Somehow I hooked up with him, did this recording of music, which is classical, but which uses the language of jazz and gospel and blues, other things. And it's a, it's a very interesting recording. It, it, before the virus took over the world, it managed to get one review in something called Black Grooves, which is put out by Indiana University. Um, and that that's pretty much the end of it. I had almost forgotten about it. It just feels kind of ghoulish to send my recording out now. Nobody cares about that. Everybody's trying to just stay well. So I'm just going to wait till this whole mess dies down and then I'll get to get back to work on some, some publicity stuff. Okay. Okay. But we don't have to wait. Judith gave me permission to play a cut from her album, Urban Counterpoint. And here's a selection from Ed Bland's Funky Frog's Rag, spelled with PHs all the way. And then you can hear the entire piece at the end of this conversation. to a promotional for my CD, but, but that's, that's a big way in which this virus has affected my life because that was, this is the time I was supposed to be doing that. Yeah. Well, I'm sure Ralph yeah. doesn't mind that you're pushing your, your CD yeah, no. this way. I'm sure he'll, he'll support you. I remember you went to, to see Mr. Bland uh, after one of our concerts, what, four years ago or so? We played yeah, the Crow yeah. Sonata. Actually, what happened was play, I planned this recording with Ed Bland and he had the, the gall to die before I actually got to do the recording. So inconsiderate. He called me on a Friday night and said, something strange happened. I'm going to die in about a week. Can you come right away? And I said, I can't come until Sunday because I have a concert with Rolf. <laughs> you were so, playing at Brooklyn Public Library on a Sunday afternoon. Right. And the minute we were done, she got in a car. A friend was driving her down to Virginia, was it? Or Exactly. So my friend came to our concert in Brooklyn, and then we drove like maniacs to Virginia and found out he had just died. But I went through, I mean, the trip wasn't wasted because I went through his studio and I got all the scores that I needed. And, I mean, it was it was a horrible time. His wife really wanted me to make the trip anyway because she said she doesn't know 
what I need out of the studio. She's not a musician herself. So I had to just kind of go through there and make sure that before she cleaned up the studio that I had everything I needed to make the record. Right. What you're talking about is different kinds of collaboration, Um, the, the musician's collaboration with the composer, but there's also the collaboration between the solo violinist and the pianist. Uh, and there's a lot of different ways we can approach that. Judith, you did study the violin, yeah. uh, and you understand the violin, uh, and that probably makes you qualified to to uh, accompany the violin. Is that true? Yes, absolutely it's true. I was a good violinist, but I never, ever reached the level of playing that <laughs> that Rolf reached. And not too many people have, by the way. But I, I basically stopped playing when I was around 19. I still remember how it feels to play. I can pick up a fiddle, and I, my left hand looks like I might play a violinist. The right hand, forget it. I don't remember how to hold the blow. It looks like a, a club in my hand. <laughs> uh, but so- I will say I feel the most at home with... The violin in terms of other instruments but I do play with a lot of other instruments uh, and and some singers too and I I really feel absolutely at home with all instruments except maybe mm, oboe is a little strange because they breathe backwards <laughs> but it's such a beautiful instrument I'm not even going to go to breathe backwards. I have no idea what that means. Um, and me, Alan, yeah. uh, Judith doesn't like to talk about it much because it's, it was a long period of her life where she played for the eminent violin teacher, Ivan Galamian, Ivan Galamian, uh, which is actually where we met at his summer school in Meadowmount, upstate New York, where she played for some pretty illustrious players. And, uh, Perlman, Zuckerman, Kim Wachung. Yeah, she had a close relationship with Kyung Wa Chung. And she also played, which is almost historic, for the eminent violinist Nathan Milstein. I played for some very, very famous violinists. So you, you were playing the violin at a very high level. Yeah, but nowhere near the level of the people that I've worked with as a, as a pianist. I kind of had that career vicariously. Let's talk about uh, your, your, your work uh, with Rolf here. Uh, I've I've seen you perform at the Bloomingdale School of Music. What is the relationship between the solo violinist and the accompanist? And and along with that, I know Rolf. I've seen you with a couple of different accompanists. It must be the experience must be different from one pianist who's accompanying you and another. Um, right. And I wonder if you could talk about that experience of playing with the piano. And I'm talking about present with the piano. Pianists are fairly allergic to the term accompanist. Okay. So it's not a repertoire, the serious repertoire that I play, uh, we're absolute equals. In fact, most of the sonatas are written for piano and violin in that order, not the other way around. What unifies us is the music. We're both after, hopefully, a similar goal. And personality submerges to the idea of the composition, of what the composer wanted to say. Of course, it helps, you know, definitely to go back to Judith's background as a violinist, uh, that she knows the repertoire quite well, more in the concerto and virtuoso pieces. But she has covered the sonata repertoire to a large degree, too. 
so background matters, what you've done in your life, you know, what you can resource, so to speak. And of course, every pianist that I work with has a different personality, but it's it's actually it enhances the, the product, as if I may call it that. You know, a Kreutzer Sonata with with Jim Wynn, who I often play with most regularly, is different from one with Judith, for instance. But they both have very interesting aspects. And and do you find that you uh, in in playing with these other musicians that you, do you change at all in your playing? Uh, oh. It goes both ways. I mean, you react. Uh, chamber music is a reaction, uh, reactionary process. You know, a person A will do something, and person B will follow. You know, goes without saying. Yeah. yeah, and that and that goes when you're when the pianist is playing with the violinist, and you're doing a sonata, Beethoven sonata, which we're going to be hearing at the end of this program. That you are giving and taking. Is it control? Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. So I'm I'm being featured now. No, you're being featured, and you're passing the baton back and forth, so to speak. Absolutely. And and the fact that Judas and I have played these annual recitals at Bloomingdale for what 15 years, maybe longer. Um, there is a callback. Yeah. Um, I mean, I can do. I've been known to do some fairly outrageous things in concert sometimes in terms of taking time, stretching this or that, and she'll always be right there because she knows my approach my style i mean am i saying something wrong judith no not at all i, I, I mean you're very attentive you know you're always right there which uh, violinists really appreciate one one violinist famous violinist uh eugene eugene fodor <laughs> famous, had a long -standing famous for some bad things too but he put it this way he said judith you have radar <laughs> mm -hmm. um i don't think of it that way but if the if I'm playing with a violinist that is really good and who makes sense to me, like what Rolf plays makes sense to me. It doesn't have to be the same every time. But I just I just respond to it because it feels right to me. Does I'm curious, does does the music Rolf plays when you are playing together, does it tell you something about the person? I mean, have you learned about who Rolf is based on how he plays the violin? And I think we can say vice versa about the, the pianist. Or is it just the music? It's just the music. Yeah, yeah. I would say well, the, the other, the personal, is a very subliminal thing, shall we call it. Um, you know, we, we do spend time and uh, certain bits um, open themselves up. But uh, the common pursuit is the music. Yeah. Um, and of course, in performance often. Let me tell you something. Um, you can rehearse hours and hours, when you step out in front of an audience, a performance is always a different thing. Always different. And that's where you really learn uh, more about the music and also about the partner, the performer that you're working with. What, what is it, what is it uh, that makes it different? What, what, what are the elements that change it up? Right. First of all, nerves. Uh -huh. uh, they can play tricks on you because, you know, we prefer being totally relaxed, not to have to dress up when we play a re in a rehearsal. We come, you know, as we always dress, um, we have the liberty to stop when something doesn't go perfectly. In a performance, when you start, it's going to run its course, uh, which makes it exciting, but also very dangerous. Um, and that danger is something that the great artists, um, like Yasha Heifetz, for instance, um, take advantage of. When you hear Heifetz play, you know he's going to the limit of what's possible, 
and he mostly succeeds. I mean, I would say 99% of the time, if not 100. I mean, there's a famous review where George Bernard Shaw said, please, Mr. Heifetz, play a wrong note so that we know you're human. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you've heard that story, right? Yes. Yeah. Now, now, in, in part, yeah. this this a high wire act that you're talking about here, Absolutely, in which yes. you're 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 walking from one end to the other of the of the piece that you're playing, it's being played in front of a live audience. That live audience is, in a sense, raising the raising the the uh, the, the stakes here because it's it's them there listening to you. Uh, any number of times I've seen Ralph you perform a very energetic, uh, brutally masculine piece. And and your your bow is coming apart, um, the strings are kind of like being frayed, and in in a moment you kind of rip them off, and then you keep playing. That kind of thing only happens with a live performance. We don't have well, those. No, it happens in rehearsal, but then you take a break, you stop, and you pluck off the bow hairs. No, but this but the plucking off of the bow hairs is done. I don't know. It's it's part of this performance. You have the the movement. Yes, the sound is really important, but for me, it's like that whole physical thing. That, that gets into it. And then seeing you two play together, I, I've seen you play together, there's this kind of, I don't know, kind of a vibration between you. You almost can see it, the, the intense listening that's going on. Uh-huh. That yeah. may not be so much uh, something we're aware of ourselves, but as an audience, I'm sure you pick up on that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So I wanted to um, to ask you, too, if you can come up with some uh, suggestions of what we should be listening to now to get us through the next eight weeks. Is that possible? Six, eight weeks? I mean, that's a long time to be conquered down. What What do you suggest we listen to? And then tell us what we're going to be listening to now, the Beethoven sonata that, that you two um, are sharing with us. The Beethoven sonata may not be the perfect example, even though the scherzo is very lively and very up, very positive. The finale is very stormy. You know, Beethoven was in one of his angry moods there. I wish we had a recording of the Kreutzer Sonata, which was going to be on this program. The slow movement of it, which is oddly enough on my music stand right here in front of me, um, is one of the most benign pieces. It's a set of variations in the major key. um, And there's one... The one variation in minor looks into the darkest abyss, if you want. Mm-hmm. But then the, the last variation goes into major, and it re- really reaches heavenly spheres. So that being said, I mean, recently I have an old friend in Germany who helped take care of my mother before she died, and he lost a son. And I remember emailing him um, that the two great composers, uh, and he's not a musician, not very well versed musically either. The two great consolers among the composers are Bach and and late Beethoven. So anything of Bach's will help us Mm -hmm. get through this period. Um, The cantatas, the passions, and then the late Beethoven piano sonatas, and remarkably a lot of the earlier uh, slow movements of his, for instance, third piano concerto, even the first piano concerto, beautiful slow movements. Judas, you go ahead. Uh, give your assessment of, of uh, consoling music. I think I would go more toward the uh, romantic period, maybe the uh, Schumann Spring Symphony, which yeah. which I love very much. There's always Chopin. <laughs> sure, sure. Absolutely. Um, Chopin, 
uh, mazurkas. So, some of them are a, a little bit sad, but but most of them most of them are not. I would say almost anything by Chopin would be would be beautiful. As most people, you know, I'm thinking of things that most people would like, and I think there are very few people who really don't uh, like Chopin. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh really? Oh. Ch- Ch- well, I, I know some musicians who don't. I, you know, contemporary mm-hmm. people who don't like it at all. Mm-hmm. I would say Tchaikovsky, uh, any of the symphonies, overtures, not so much piano music, but the or- orchestral pieces, Mendelssohn orchestra pieces. The octet would be very oh, upbeat. Sure. Yeah. Wow, that's. I, that's- I would say romantic period generally. Thank you very much, Judith Olson and Rolf Schulte, for joining us and talking us how, about how you are surviving uh, the COVID-19 as the alarms go out on the streets outside my window. I constantly during the lessons, always. Yep, yep. And it's, uh, it's, it's been a part of this show since I started it. Again, thank yeah. you very much. Stay safe. Um, okay. Stay covered. And uh, we'll, we'll continue to talk.
That was Rolf Schulte, violinist, and Judith Olson, pianist, playing a bright Beethoven sonata. This is Hunker Down, a podcast to get you through this pandemic. Next, Judith Olson performing Ed Bland's Funky Frog's Rag from her album Urban Counterpoint.
One more time, this is Hunkered Down. It's a podcast to help get you through this pandemic. If you like what you're hearing, please contact us at UpperWestSideRadio at gmail.com. One word, UpperWestSideRadio at gmail.com. Have a great day.